This is the Macworld Podcast, episode 549 for March 8th, 2017. Folks, welcome back to the Macworld Podcast. It's March, and uh, I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means at all. The year progresses, things are going to happen, the future is uncertain. That's all I know. But uh, by the way, I'm Glenn Fleischman. I'm the host of the Macworld Podcast, and joining me as she always is, is Susie Oaks, the executive editor of Macworld. Hello, Susie. Howdy, Glenn. How, How are you? How do you? I guess you don't always join me, but almost Most always. of the time. Most of the time. Um, I try to be here for you. We're just... I'm always here for you. I'm just not always here. here. That's very kind. Likewise. Likewise. We're always in Slack, that's for sure. So it's March, and that means we're getting close to the kind of March-April cycle, because Apple always likes to release stuff around March and April. We don't know when. There's no announcements or invitations out yet. So uh, it's also possible they won't do an event, and they'll just ship some stuff. Sometimes they do that. They've had a bunch of events uh, in recent years where they've kind of done not very much, so I wonder if they might just ship things too, but... We're getting to that well, time. Well, all the rumors right now are pointing to an iPad event, and but w- Tim Cook has said that there should be something coming for Pro users and for desktop Mac uh, lovers Ooh. this year. So, and those don't always make it into the rumor cycle. Sometimes they're tacked on to existing events. Sometimes they just ship. But since these are so anticipated, I hope that they would like do something to be like, "Look, the computers you've been waiting for are finally here, and they're amazing." But, um, again, we really don't know. Can we guess what pun they might use in the invitation thing? Uh, we're taking out the trash again. We're, <laughs> we, we're a <laughs> cylinder that looks like a trash can, but not anymore. I don't know. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of sad. We're all sort of sad about what's happened to the Mac. But Tim assures us good things are coming. So those who wait and wait and wait and wait, they'll come. Um, Susie, we have some follow-up from previous, from previous episodes um, and uh, previous things. We were talking about the uh, lightning port last week because a rumor had come out. Wall Street Journal was reporting that uh, it seemed like Apple might be doing something funky and getting rid of the lightning port in favor of USB-C. Although, to your good credit, you speculated, well, maybe they're just going to ship a lightning to USB-C cable and adapter. And that's what it sounds more likely, right? Um, this week, yeah, we think there was another rumor that quickly refuted the first rumor being like, that's crazy. Like that would have been a thing. We would have known about it. Um, so yeah, maybe it'll just be the, the USB a side of the cable will be USB C and because you already have USB a cables or whatever. Um, but cause right now that's a, that's an add on that only really affects people who have bought USB C based Macs. And since those are the newest Macs, it feels like they're getting nickel and dimed. So, um, yeah, or maybe when you order a new device, it'll say, hey, which cable do you want? And you can pick whichever Ooh. one would be more applicable to your lifestyle. I don't know. That's a skew thing. But if I, I would be more inclined to believe they would ship a USB-C. Uh, they'd put USB-C in everything, lightning to USB-C with a USB-C uh, adapter just because that would be nice too because yeah. everyone could use one of those adapters yeah because once you do that then it's like Lord okay knows. well if you for some reason want to use your mat you know if you want to charge with a, a type a adapter a people have them lying around they have the older cable lying around b they're super cheap i think i can buy one on uh, amazon one of the amazon basics for like seven dollars or something so it's not a big add-on for people who don't have them <clears throat> excuse me 
would they ship a little power brick with a USB-C port in it as that's well? That's what I mean, yeah. Well, that's that what I think be they would sweet. do. Because right now they ship um, – I'm trying to think. Uh, I just got uh, – with the iPhones, they still ship the little two-prong doohickey, right? Yes, yes. So you get the charger and the cable. Yeah, so they can re-engineer that around USB-C. USB-C is a slightly more complicated spec, but it's not so complicated. You can't stick it into a, a small adapter. It just um, requires different circuitry. It might be a little more expensive for Apple to make uh, to make a USB-C you know, power adapter, but if they switch over all iPhones and all iPads um, over, you know, a few months to it, then it's negligible, I think, for them. So, um, And wouldn't that help you be able to charge faster? Um, depends. depends. Because that's been a thing they've touted with, you know, like the AirPods and the Apple Pencil and stuff. Like it's how fast you can charge things is becoming like something that people really care about. Yeah, it would be pretty cool if they shipped a higher wattage uh, power adapter is for starters. Because Apple always ships the minimum uh, wattage power adapter with every device. So when you buy uh, – and that's partly because of the type A limitation. But even if you if you buy an iPhone, it only comes with an adapter that charges at 5 – wait, is it 5 watts? It's uh, uh, Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and the iPad is I think 12 watts now. But – um, the iPad Pros can charge much faster than that. They can plug in uh, via the Lightning to USB-C cable. If you plug that into a USB-C adapter, like uh, one of the chargers that comes with an Apple uh, USB-C laptop, it'll charge uh, two or three times as fast, I think, depending on the Pro. And the iPhone, the iPhones can charge at up to, you know, I've never been able to get a totally definitive answer there, but I think it's 21 Volt or 2.1 amps at five uh, volts, so that's like uh, uh, over 10 watts as well. So again, you can plug an iPhone into a higher wattage adapter if you have one uh, using Type A. But yeah, if it's Type C, it's not that it allows um, necessarily you know bumps that automatically from five watts to 10 watts or 15 watts. So Apple has the option to you know they talk about um, the speed of a charger, you know, amperage, uh, amperage and wattage are, are interrelated concepts and. Typically, I'm sorry, amperage and voltage, you multiply them to get wattage. So it's always, you know, is it faster? Usually that means the watts remain the same because that's a standard for USB. Uh, and you increase the uh, amperage. Um, with USB-C, you can increase both the watts and the amps. So you can have devices that are running at high, uh, sorry, both the uh, volts, volts and the amps, and the rather. Amps, yeah. um, so it gets confusing. Like Power Delivery 2.0 is a USB-C spec that we're still waiting to see rolled out fully into third-party adapters. And Apple's own adapters are a little funky. They are slightly proprietary. Um, because, uh, in fact, the one battery, remember when I was testing a bunch of USB-C batteries, and I tested one uh, from Moz, MOS, that was fantastic because it uh, could charge at up to 29 uh of watts, it actually could charge a MacBook at full speed because it supported Power Delivery 2.0. Unfortunately, they decided not to bring it to market. They're selling off their stock of the ones they made in prototype, but they never got it to a point where they felt they could go into full production. So there yeah. is no USB-C uh, battery pack that charges faster than I think 15 watts, and there's there's only a handful of third-party power adapters that support USB-C. Uh, for laptop charging too. So it's a really weird position. I mean, Google, you know, you can buy a power adapter from Google and from other, some other makers, but um, USB-C is still out there to be exploited, explo- exploited for faster charging. So this might be the move Apple's making. That would be cool because I think that's something that would, you know, help sell more phones. Ch- oh, the, yeah, charge- or- the charging fast is a big deal. 
Yeah, or if you bought a 12-inch uh, or 12-point, uh, was it, 12.9-inch iPad Pro, and instead of coming with a charger that charges it very slowly, it came with a charger that charged it as fast as it could be charged. I think that's a selling point. Yeah, I mean, it adds adds cost, but Apple keeps carving. Apple's strategy with all its products is that through iteration, they uh, lower their materials cost and they raise their margin and they trade the margin for new things, right? So they might decide at this point in the iPad Pro cycle to put a faster charger in, even if it costs them an extra, you know, 75 cents or $2 or whatever, because they've earned that back through lower costs as manufacturing's become cheaper. Uh, and that's an update. So um, we have the other one. Oh, yeah, we put in this breaking news. As we're recording this, WikiLeaks has just done a, a data dump. And instead of revealing uh, risotto recipes of political operatives, this time it's uh, they reveal what's being reported to be and not fully confirmed yet to be a dump of CIA uh, and their partners, international uh, intelligence agency partners, hacking, including some direct code and evidence of um, a lot of stuff. So uh, very interesting problem there. Yeah, there's some, I mean, none of this is like a super surprise. Like this is all, you know, spy stuff that spy agencies do. <laughs> yes. But there were some interesting details. So um, a BBC article is talking about um, there's uh, the the documents described um, an effort to compromise Samsung smart TVs, codenamed Weeping Angel. Oh my God! Um, and they were Who so, fans. so they had a they created a <laughs> fake off mode, so your TV would look like it was off, but it was really listening and recording and sending audio back to you know headquarters for Inspector Gadget to look through. So that's a little freaky. And then um, they said that they had hacked both. Um, they had zero days for for Android as well as for iOS and yeah, although some um, of the you know, where they had gotten those and what what they could do. The trove is allegedly from 2013 to 2016, so it's possible right. some of those have been patched. Although on the Android side, something we've talked about for a long time and security folks talk about is that older uh, some phone some Android phones uh, get almost uh, almost end of life when they ship. And major manufacturers of Android phones try to provide some update cycle, but often there's issues with uh, delays or the phone stops being supported or the carrier doesn't approve updates and so forth. So a lot of phones, this is uh, the Trump phone problem. He was, at least until recently, using an Android phone that was uh, unpatchable past a certain point, so likely had active exploits that simply can't be protected against because it's just the nature of you, you can't, you'd have to root the phone and that's not available for all phones and blah, blah, blah. So Android is not um, an insecure platform by design. It's just that many, many, many Android devices. So, uh, uh, you know, an exploit from 2013, it might have been patched in all the current flavors of Android um, that have come out since then. Uh, but there might still be, you know, 500 million phones that are susceptible that were sold and who knows how many are still active. So um, one other concerning issue, with, well, a couple of concerning things. One was uh, more reports of uh, what seemed to be embedded firmware hacks, which is like the Samsung hack, which is um, – th- this came out a few years ago. Uh, there were uh, – there was re- – I believe – I forget if this was from a WikiLeaks or a Snowden um, thing, but it was that you could uh, – uh, malicious parties or governments could infect the um, firmware on a hard drive because hard drives obviously have a small operating system to run the drive. And they someone had developed um, or was discovered or reported. I don't know. I mean it's just – I think it was a murky area about that, uh, that the firmware could be flashed and replaced 
with malicious firmware that then when the computer booted, this firmware would then um, talk over the bus and like infect the computer. And so you could actually wipe a computer, reinstall an operating system, and if you use the same drive, it would just get reinfected. So there's uh, been a lot of concern about that because a lot of the things like that are not – they don't have the same protections that computers have. They don't have uh, cryptographically signed updates. They don't do any – there's no hardware chip that checks. Like an iPhone, when it boots, it does all kinds of stuff that's baked into hardware to validate that it's running legitimate software. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's in there. Um, And the other is that there's some concern – it was an interesting thing. It said – uh, I think this relates more to the Android um, Android uh, exploits, but it was talking about what's uh, WhatsApp and Signal and some other uh, messaging apps that are considered extremely secure that um, they could be bypassed. But I don't think it was saying at all. The reports were a little murky, like I say, but I don't think they were saying that those yeah. had been cracked. It was. I that, don't think the servers had been. I think it was like they had accessed it, like they they pre- were able to get into a device and then open the apps on the, the that, that device. And yeah, you could see get what well, you could happening. intercept the text before it was encrypted. Is what it. Uh, Oh, okay. That's what it sounded like. So if you exploit Android, then it doesn't matter. If you capture keystrokes inside Android, it doesn't matter if you're typing them into the world's most secure messaging mm-hmm. system. Uh, totally. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, you know, and this is, you know, this is, so I, there's a lot of political issues around WikiLeaks these days and also about the, um, uh, the way in which it releases information, whether it's you know, good or bad for the world, because this is uh, most of the time security researchers, when they get a hold of things like this, they do various kinds of disclosures. And depending on the company and the severity, they talk to the company first. They make sure uh, they give the company a period of time, um, like 90 days often, or sometimes shorter, depending on what it is. And there's an attempt to allow the flaws to be patched so that they don't become well-known zero days that are immediately exploited against uh, vulnerable users. Mm -hmm. And WikiLeaks, by dumping it in this fashion, if they provided enough information to exploit these, they've made people vulnerable worldwide. So there's an argument that they have every, uh, you know, anyone in possession of this kind of information, it might be considered a civic duty by some, or it might be considered traitorism or treason by others (laughs) to release it. Um, But there's also the disclosure issue that when you release – so you remember last summer when that uh, fellow in the UAE, that activist, had – was uh, hit by a text-based scam that relied on three different zero days in iOS and some of which applied at macOS. So the organization in Canada working uh, with him – worked with Apple very closely. They got in touch. They did not release any information until Apple had pushed out uh, patches and everything was set because it's not that everything could have been instantly reverse engineered, but once you know there are weaknesses, people go at it. So um, in this case, WikiLeaks may be uh, both benefiting mankind, depending on your point of view, let's just pretend they are, but also uh, potentially putting hundreds of millions of people at risk to zero days um, because of uh, unpatchable changes or just a lack of uh, advanced warning for operating systems and software makers to um, fix this. So never a dull day in 2017, eh? Yeah. Never. That's, that's the truth. Um, Last week we were talking about teddy bears that spy on you though. So that was fun. That was fun. (laughs) I mean, you know, simpler times, maybe if the CIA, yeah, if they can have your TV spy on you, 
they could probably have a teddy bear spy on you too. So by 1984, the book was much more straightforward that they're just observing you all the time. It was just straightforward. It's like there was no subterfuge. We have a giant monitor yeah. and it's You're watching you all the time. a little more transparent about why, it. Why does that sound relaxing now compared to this drumbeat of like, it's? <laughs> I'm, I'm wrong. I, I'm not promoting the notion of universal surveillance, folks. Um, and just by the way, I wrote a summary, the, the uh, private eye that ran on uh, Monday of this week uh, at Macworld.com, just summarizing like two weeks worth of a, just a ridiculous number of, you know, teddy bears, like teddy bears spying on you, cracked teddy bear voicemail, um, the SHA-1 breakage for cryptographic hashes and the Cloudflare leak. Because I felt like people were getting a little fried um, about this kind of stuff. So here's yet another Security one. Security grab bag. Oh, my God. It just, you know, it, you can only uh, – so I'm using the uh, Washington uh, State uh, – this is not a political message. I'm using the Washington State Healthcare Exchange. This is not a political discussion about the ACA. But I happen to have acquired insurance for my family through that this year. I get an email from them. This is a tool meant to be used by millions of Washingtonians. It should be simple, straightforward, easy to use. I get an email that says, hey, it's been three months. You have to reset your password. I'm like, for, for what purpose? And then I go there, and I'd forgotten this. It's like your password has to be between 8 and 20 characters. It has to use a blah, blah. And I'm like, look <laughs> – no offense to other people's intelligence, but let's just talk about computer literacy. You're asking people who are stressed out, you know, they're maybe economically disadvantaged who are using this, you know, across a wide spectrum. It's not just the exchange isn't just for people who can't, um, you know, just directly contract with an insurer. A lot of our insurance now is through the exchange for uh, individual and families uh, mm-hmm. outside of uh, employer provided. But I'm just, I still go back to that. It's like, why are you putting people through this pain? Not just once, but every three months, no one is trying to crack my account to find out what health care I have, maybe to steal access to my health care. But then there's the ID requirement. I'm like, come on. Anyway, so make it easier for people. Yeah. Um, on a happier note, uh, Apple's opened a uh, – on March 27th, they will um, allow developers to apply for a scholarship to attend the Worldwide Developer Conference, WWDC in San Jose this year, uh, announced months ahead of time, which was nice. And you get a free ticket and lodging if they give you a scholarship. And um, this is a way for them to make sure that they're not uh, keeping uh, opportunity for people to you know, get access to this remarkable event based strictly on economic uh, reasons. It's part of their effort to make sure that you know it's not just big companies or people making a lot of money from apps or the independently wealthy coming, but they have uh, – folks in other parts of an economic spectrum who are also involved in development or to encourage people. So I think it's great. Yeah. And the application process involved um, making something in a Swift playground, oh. which could be, um, you know, done in the iPad app, Swift playgrounds or in Xcode on a Mac. So it's, you know, a nice blind process, which we like to see in the tech industry. And I think it even said that if you couldn't, they would even like help you fly there maybe if, if you needed it. So they were really committed to, to getting, you know, some, some people who wouldn't otherwise be able to go, which we applaud. Yeah, talented students and members of STEM organizations. I think it's great because uh, the ticket is uh, 1600 bucks plus lodging could be hundreds of dollars a night conceivably. Yeah, it's plus, like for a week. I mean, you don't want to be like, well, I could only stay two days because like, you know, who can afford 300 bucks a night? Like that's that's against like what we're trying to do here. It could easily, if you're traveling from somewhere else, it could easily cost you $3,000 to go to WWDC. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe, you know, less if you, if you work at it, but still not a lot less, um, you know, you could stay with people or try to Airbnb and drive or take public transit. But um, I, I, anything that opens this up to more people, I think, is great because this is pathway to um, 
having independent, uh, you know, or, or a better work life, I think. Um, being an Iowa Apple developer. takes good care of its guests, too. I know they're always oh, like yeah. they do like a thing with the scholarship. Like kids like they get to like meet Tim Cook or Craig or I don't know. Like it's, it's it seems like a really cool thing. Like you want you want in this group like Apple takes very good care of its guests. I'll just to highlight for a second, too, is I know there's a lot of concern about Silicon Valley, including Apple, about, you know, the uh, diversity and uh, gender equity and things where it's like, what are they doing that they're leaving out X percentage of the world? Right. So, you know, what it's if there's 50 percent of the world is female, why isn't upper management, you know, half or you know, even 40 percent, whatever. Right. There's right. there's a lot of very good numeric arguments to be made. And you look at graduation rates, even if you track graduation rates and you, you plot them, those those don't work either. It's been a lot of issues with Uber, um, about diversity numbers and uh, gender equity. But here's the thing that's interesting. Uh, Kickstarter, a crowdfunding site that I've used for my own projects a number of times, they released a uh, report recently because they're a, a public benefit corporation, a B Corp, where it's a legal structure that some states have adopted. Um, Patagonia was one of the leaders uh, to uh, reincorporate itself this way, where their primary duty as a for-profit company is not to serve shareholders. It's one of the duties, but they also define a social mission or mm-hmm. a public good, and they are measured by how well they achieve that. So this allows them to do it and not be subject to a shareholder lawsuit that would be successful, at least, um, based on choosing that route rather than pure, um, you know, money. Make all the money you can. Yeah. 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 And so uh, Kickstarter is 50% of, uh, of its employees are women and 50% of management is women. So that's a company that, that's so cool. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's not just the public good part and it's not a huge company. There's a hundred some odd people there. Um, but it is often talked about as a very hot place because they're, you know, they're bringing in billions of dollars for creators and anyway, it can be done. It can be done if you make effort to make sure you're not, uh, looking in a mirror. Folks, uh, some Apple business news, Susie. Lots of news. Hey, there was an annual meeting, Apple annual meeting. Um, you know that Costco has an annual meeting here in the Seattle area? No, it's I did a, not. It does. And you know what they serve at the Costco annual meeting? Samples? They serve samples. They serve, they bring out those big Costco muffins and they put them out for shareholders to eat uh, and coffee and other goods. I don't think they bring a hot dog cart, unfortunately, but um, yeah. Uh, Number one would be samples. Number two would be hot dogs. I know, no hot dogs, but they bring Costco. out they bring out muffins and such. And uh, apparently, Costco annual meeting is it's a pretty well run company. Treats its employees pretty well. The CEO is a pretty cool guy, actually, and uh, it's a uh, it's a love fest. Apple annual meeting. They do not bring out say Brayburns or um, painted ladies or sorry pink ladies or other apples. And nor do they. It, it just sounded like it was a boring affair. Did you? I, I didn't even follow it. I read some follow up, and it sounded very very just um, an, uh, what they call anodyne. It's kind of a boring event. Yeah, I didn't really get that into it because, yeah, the news coming out of it sounded like it wasn't news. It's not really like the analyst call. No. Well, and, well the analyst call, I mean, is more they, they get into the nitty gritty of the results because the analysts are using this to make their predictions for the next quarter. So sometimes they'll get into the weeds of stuff like constant currency and like, you know, global currency fluctuations and stuff that I don't really understand. Um, but but they, they do talk a lot about the products and like how this product performed versus other 
quarters. So that's at least, you know, like you can graph that and make results and like kind of talk about it in a more um, qualitative way. But the the shareholder meeting, like the shareholders are allowed to um, like submit kind of proposals and resolutions if they're like, yeah, we think Apple right. should, you know, hire more women executives or like change the board. I think they, they get to vote on the board. The board got reelected. So like it, there's potential for like stuff to happen, but it doesn't really happen. So it's just kind of, yeah, their their annual shareholder meeting. So I don't know. It'd, it'd be really hard to get excited about it unless you were you were there. That's true. Just in contrast, and not to turn this into a financial podcast, as I often try to not do, um, Snap, the company that makes Snapchat, which is just called Snap, went public in the last week or so and uh, raised an ungodly amount of money. And um, the stock went up on the first day. A reminder to people who study this, remember, if your IPO – the day of your IPO, initial public offering, your stock price goes up a bunch. It means you left money on the table. It is not a good thing. People are always like, the stock is up 40% in trading. I'm like, that means they didn't sell enough shares or they underpriced it because that money is not going to the company that sold the shares. It's yeah. being put into the market. Uh, but anyway, one of the weirdest things to me about Snap is not its valuation, which is very, very high, but there's some justification for it. Although some people think folks are smoking uh, various substances. Uh, the the way it's structured is the founders have essentially uh, all the voting rights. So if you buy shares in the company, unlike Apple, which is organized was you know went public long enough ago, and is organized the way most public companies are, there are enough shareholders who are not insiders that you can actually vote on things, and that you might go against the company's wishes, and then the company would have to you know institutional owners, individuals, they cast votes, whatever. Snap, basically the founders have a special. And a lot of companies have a special class. Yeah. And that happens at a lot of companies where there's like 10 voting right shares in this special class to every one and another New York Times is organized yeah. that way, Facebook, whatever. Snap, there are effectively no voting rights for anyone who buys shares. <laughs> so the founders could actually sell. I read this uh, analysis that so they could essentially sell either all or most of their holdings and still control the company. Interesting. This seems wrong to me. But I'm not a financial analyst. I just I'm just a poor country tech colonist. That's all. <laughs> Don't ask me, Susie. I'm just a poor country. Uh, I buy mutual funds. That's right. But speaking of poor countries, this is a terrible segue. Um, Apple has. Oh, it's Glenn. It's true. Well, you got to deal <laughs> it's with good reality. news, though. Good news. Yeah. Tell us the good news. Well, Apple has said it's going to stop buying. Um, this is sort of a terrible term, but apparently it's what's used: artisanally mined cobalt. From Congo, uh, we have friends. Uh, my wife and I have friends who uh, adopted a, a baby from Congo years ago. It's a lovely, lovely kid because um, they went there on a relief mission and they just, you know, they couldn't leave someone behind. And there's a lot of kids who've left Congo that way. It's a desperately, desperately poor country. It, it's it's um, an incredibly sad situation. So a lot of countries have what are called uh, conflict minerals, where you have militias or um, government like paramilitary forces. Uh, either running mines or forcing people like forced slave labor or economic slavery um, to mine. And in this case is a child labor issue as well as harsh conditions were reported uh, in some of the hand mining that's going on. And uh, forget all the mm -hmm. health issues too of mining and breathing in cobalt dust and so forth. So uh, Apple last year promised to do more to get out of um, – to make sure it's not engaged in the global conflict mining trade. And uh, this is uh, one of the steps. They're reevaluating their artisanal suppliers of hand-mined cobalt. cobalt. Um, terrible thing. It, 
I mean, they've, they've stopped buying um, buying it for now, and then they're going to work on a program to verify the mines one by one according to you know labor standards that that Apple wants to abide by. And then, as those mines are verified, they will re-enter the supply chain. Right, and it's and it's a so. desperately it's um what is it a Hobbesian choice? I forget. It's it's one of those great moral dilemmas. Mm-hmm. Is that if Apple left the market, it means that a desperately poor country with no foreign currency and and almost no like their agriculture has collapsed as well would have even less money. So um, if you want to uh, start openly weeping, just go read stories about the Congo and you will not, or Congo, sorry, not the Congo. And you, um, the Congo is an imperialist term, let me just point out. Um, but go read about Congo and you will uh, just uh, weep and never stop. So as, as happens in much of the world. So I'm glad Apple's making a move here. Lar- this is actually the kind of thing where larger companies have the ability to um, improve conditions of downstream supply chains and change the way um, the worst things in the world happen if they can be bothered to insinuate themselves or insert themselves into it. Uh, it's tough. It's tough. Um, so in a less horrible note, I like to bring the podcast down. Um, report came out that I thought was interesting. Uh, New York Times was reporting on Apple's uh, – sort of drop in market share in sales and in revenue too, uh, selling into classrooms with both iPads and uh, uh, laptops. And Susie, I don't know about you, but of course, you know, when I went to school, the, the first we were full of Apple IIs and similar, or probably two E's at that point, and then Macintoshes. And uh, what was, you're just, I know you're, you're younger than I am. So uh, were you at a, a PC school or an Apple school? Um, I came up in the 80s and we had an Apple II C or something or Apple IIe like in the in the back of most of our classrooms, chunk it away back there. So yeah, yeah. I mean Apple. The thing is, uh, the I think Macs. There's enough software to operate them, but boy, if we you know we had uh, Fraser Spears on to talk about uh, running um, the iPad uh, when the iPad Pro came out to talk about running it in classroom situation, and ever at him and a number of other people, Apple hasn't necessarily made it easy enough to manage a lot of iPads. And uh, Chromebooks are pretty good. So Chromebooks have been picking up market share because um, you can get a really powerful machine for less than an iPad that is more uh, configurable, fully functional, and um, I think even easier to replace. You know, it's just not the same preciousness of thing. So uh, I'm not surprised that Chromebooks have taken a share as they've actually become really great functioning um, little powerhouses. Yeah, well, I mean, this is totally anecdotal, but my I'm registering my son for kindergarten now, my baby. Oh my um, god! And I know, <laughs> holy cow! Okay, he's so he's such a big oh. boy. But anyway, so I'm touring this the school that he's going to attend, and um, they have technology in every classroom, and they were really proud of it. And it was like a split; it was like some iPads and some Chromebooks. Um, so I, you know, I didn't ask, but I was wondering like, as they break, like if they replace an iPad with an iPad or if they replace everything new, like that breaks with a Chromebook or, or what, because I don't know. And, you know, they both look pretty rugged. Um, you, you have to put the iPad in, in quite a case to, to be able to unleash it among little children. Um, cause they can be pretty rough with things, but, but the iPads do keep working for a long time. But yeah, um, if the Chromebooks are easier to, to, you know, administer as a, as a big group, that's a huge selling point for schools. Yeah. And the touchscreen is obviously more intuitive for kids who can't yet type or have the manual dexterity to work on a computer. But, um, I don't know. I think as you get not much beyond very young kids, the, the Chromebook, it's not that it has more advantage than you can do. It's not like you can't do things with an iPad. I think it's just, in terms of the the bang for the buck for what's needed in schools, um, Chromebook, I understand why it's become more popular. 
Well, I would love my son to be exposed to more, you know, laptop kind of machines at school because Mm -hmm. right now, I mean, he considers the iPad like his device. Like that's his iPad. He uses it as a camera. He's like, let me put it in camera mode. And he goes around like taking pictures of things. And then, you know, it's his little like TV. It's his like he plays games on it. So... But he has shown no interest whatsoever in the actual computers. <laughs> and I'm always on the computer. And like sometimes like so the iPad case he uses has a little like uh, there's a it's it's like two parts. There's a keyboard part and a regular part. So the keyboard part we don't keep attached to the rest of it. But every once in a while, if he wants to like, you know, be like mommy, he'll put the keyboard on and pretend that it's a computer. But I mean, even a Chromebook would be more of a step towards like I feel like you know using an adult laptop because right now he's all iPad all the time so it would be kind of cool to expose him to a new thing I was going to say Susie we all put a keyboard on the iPad and try to pretend it's a computer but I'm fine (laughs) yeah it's like a toy like it's like it's cute it's like it lights up it's a nice little keyboard Uh, Um, I I I think it's a Zag Rugged. It's a good one. Oh, yeah. I had to send my uh, 12-inch MacBook back for for basically almost entire replacement uh, a few weeks ago. And I used my iPad Pro with the um, keyboard cover for several days. That's kind of my main home computer. Uh, I've got like an office machine, but I was using it kind of like for other purposes. Yeah. And um, and it was interesting. I didn't find it. It was was a good experience. It was slightly – Difficult, but I, you know, I think I think it has definitely transitioned into something more like a computer. But you know, on the other hand, that setup costs like a thousand dollars, and I didn't buy a top of the line um, iPad Pro, a nine point uh, nine point whatever inch, nine point seven inch. Wish they give them names. Just give them names, model numbers. Big Pro, Lil Pro, Lil Pro, Lil Pro. So uh, I think moving but that's going to all blow up when they bring out the seven point nine inch Pro. Then it's going to be like. Mama, Papa, Baby Bear or something. I don't know. The good pro, the bad pro, and the medium pro. No, wait a second. That's not right. Uh, So uh, YouTube, moving on. Uh, Our favorite topic is how can you watch things on a computer or Apple TV? Uh, Because it's so confusing, Susie. It is so confusing where to find things. Um, And YouTube has announced a Sling TV-like service. And I got to tell you, now uh, this is well-established. I am not the biggest TV watcher, especially like cable channel, whatever. Um, this is uh, $35 a month. You get about 40 TV networks, includes the major broadcast networks, plus ESPN, unlimited cloud DVR storage. And you can record simultaneously as many shows as you want, store them for up to nine months. You get six accounts, each with its own DVR silo, and you can watch three concurrent streams at once. Um, and includes other channels like uh, USA, Bravo, Disney, whatever, um, no CNN, uh, no AMC, um, A&E, TBS, MTV, TNT are all out. Uh, Showtime is an extra fee, no HBO. This does not sound that exciting to me. Am I missing something about what they're offering? I mean, that sounds really good to me. Like, that's, okay. a, good, that's a good bundle. And the price is pretty good because I'm so like uh, Sling right now kind of splits it into two. There's like the orange bundle and the blue bundle. So if you only really care about ESPN, like you can just buy orange. And if you like the cable stuff, like Bravo and whatever, you can buy blue. But then if you want everything, it ends up being like 40 bucks a month. Oh, so that's so not this bad. one gives you everything for 35. That's pretty good. And then um But you don't get A and E and you don't get I mean it's yeah. I know everybody see everyone's different. And the question is like now you have to examine I, I don't know. It depends know. on what box you're using. Like for Apple TV users, they're you know they haven't announced an Apple TV app yet, so that right. is a strike against it. Sling has an Apple TV app. 
I can't remember if PlayStation View does. None of them are integrated with the the TV, like Apple's own TV right. kind so of uh, interface. So, um, but yeah, this looks like a good bundle if you're into the bundle thing, which is like, you know, a little mini cable that only lives on the internet. Um, the like DVR you and thing. I have been doing more of like the, you know, the Hulu and Amazon kind of uh, a la carte kind of streaming services. But um, but yeah, the DVR thing is sort of, is cool. I haven't played with the DVR on on Sling. I don't know if Sling has one. I think they I were getting one. I don't know. I mean, the unlimited DVR is interesting because the like on demand is one thing, but programs tend to you know they time out. There's yeah. uh, certain things aren't available, and so if you can, and and that's actually where it gets interesting, where they include something like Sci-Fi, which is doing a lot of original programming. In fact, I'm a big fan of two sci-fi programs. And um, if my in-laws ever cancel their cable, I'm out of luck, right? I got to go pay for for that somewhere. (laughs) Um, But there's, you know, original programming makes DVRs a better deal because otherwise, um, you know, actually this doesn't save it as BBC America, but like Doctor Who, for instance, uh, programs are available for a finite amount of time and then they time out from the replay service or a whatever. If you have a DVR service and it's a nine month uh, you know, account or nine month uh, expiration date on what you do with the DVR, then you can conceivably uh, store those programs. And if you're not ready to watch them within the uh, replay or um, what do you call it? Like a, a, a on demand window, yeah. window, which sometimes is not that long. Sometimes it's only several weeks. Then you at least lets you binge later or watch over time, you know, six months later, you can still catch up without having to purchase or, or do something else. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's like, so I think, I, if Sling has a DVR, it's new. I haven't used it. If um, they might not have one yet, I think they're talking about I think it they at do. least. So yeah, but so I was I was watching a lot of stuff, you know, through through its on demand. Like I don't really watch that much live because then you know you're watching like the commercials and everything in real time. But the on demand stuff, since they leave the commercials in. Sometimes they will disable fast forward. Right. And then that's a problem for me if I'm trying to watch something on demand and I can't like stay awake the whole time. Then like sometimes it takes me a few tries to get through something because you can't just like fast forward. Wait, so, so maybe it, a DVR would let you do that. Yeah, I don't you, know. I don't know. Yeah. If, the, if their DVR lets you skip commercials, that's even better than the on, I mean, you should record it rather than use the on demand, even if on demand uh, is available. Well, it's interesting. I'm still, you know, I feel like we're still in the um, somewhere, not even in the intermediate part of this transition because I like not to underestimate the cost um, or to, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not opposed to companies making profit. Obviously (laughs) that's how, that's how capitalism works. Uh, But uh, I feel like the, we're still paying at a level that reflects it's basically like cable, yeah. Yeah, it's like the infrastructure. It's like if you're going to do all this, you might as well just get cable. Right. At some, because at some point, we're going to have a flip over at some point. It's kind of like how, I mean, uh, you know, tens of millions of Americans still watch broadcast TV, as unlikely as that seems. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people watch, I mean, sorry, over-the-air television. There's a lot of people use over-the-air. And um, some people have a very limited cable subscription that's effectively just a duplication of over-the-air programming because of antenna or whatever. I, you know, I've talked about this many times. I have a... HD or a DTV or whatever they call it, ADTV, whatever the antenna type is called on the roof to pick up uh, digital TV programming. And I've got a HD home run uh, tuner on my network mm-hmm. and I'm recording mm-hmm. it. In fact, I'm excited because the folks who make the channels app have a public beta out of their uh, channels DVR. I've been using uh, the uh, L- ITV, it's EYETV uh, DVR software for Mac, which is pretty long in the tooth. They keep updating it for compatibility, but it's really not a wonderful app. And it's not well integrated with Apple TV 
or yeah. iOS. They have apps, but it's just, uh, and they have an iOS app. It's not great. Yeah, Channels DVR would be great. Yeah, Channels, I love the app. They have an Apple TV app. I use it when we were watching, um, you know, uh, live television. Uh, now, I, I mean, I could watch the live television through my TV. I preferentially use the Channels app because it has a buffer and mm-hmm. it's just a better interface to access television. It has a guide in it. So, um, I'm still doing that, but so it's still trying to figure out like what is the actual reasonable price. I think it's going to be less than the like thirty to forty dollar a month level, or that level is going to include a lot more than it does now. But we haven't reached the point where uh, I think programming stops being a pipe, and we are just all going to be internet or mostly internet, and we just buy the services. Yeah, so it's I mean now the the cord cutting thing is there's just more viable options. Like you can kind of do cord cutting and like follow the cable model where you get you know a bundle from one of these providers, but they they tend to be a lot smarter than the cable providers as to you know letting you watch anywhere on like you know mobile devices, and it's just you know you get the kind of the convenience of a company that's thinking like internet first. Um, I, that that leads to cool features, or you can. Go go like fully a la carte, like just get season passes for, for, for the, the, you know, the one program that you like on Google play or iTunes or Amazon or wherever you want to do it. And the, or, you know, you can kind of do these, um, uh, like the, the streaming services. So you could do, so like right now I'm paying as much in streaming services as I would be, if I dropped all of my streaming services, I would save enough to do one of these like cable light bundles. So it just kind of depends. And right. if, if I was really into sports, like that would be a better thing because the cable bundles come with tons of sports. Like they come with, you know, ESPN and Sling has like an extra sports, you know, package where you can get like the, when we had our big cable package, we were paying a ton because my husband wanted this channel that was all soccer mm-hmm. and so like you can get that in like a $40 package where I used to pay like you know a hundred bucks in cable to get that so so yeah if you, it, it just kind of depends on what kind of viewer you are if you just like all you care about is Real Housewives like just go buy that from iTunes but if you care about sports like you know there's this other model and if you kind of pick and choose like if you're into you know Netflix and HBO you can just pick up those so I, I like how cord cutting feels like it's maturing just because they're coming up with all these new models and it makes it harder to you know pick what's what's right for you but it makes it also more um more possible that you're going to be able to like roll your own package that really fits your family's needs yeah and the original programming thing then gets confusing too because yeah and then you get exclusives right, like Net- you netflix know. and amazon have their own exclusive things but if you're an amazon prime customer which a lot of people are i still am uh, because it's been it's been useful for all the stuff that we do. And Amazon Prime has a ton of stuff that's free mm-hmm. on the video service. So without Amazon Prime Video, I would very likely uh, need and then another Amazon subscription. Prime gets HBO. They get HBO content that's a few years old, and you right. can like you you can buy a current HBO subscription through Amazon Prime, but you don't need to because like you can watch all of the Sopranos and like all of Six Feet Under right. older HBO stuff. Right. That's all free now. So. Oh, and, so and then confusing. like and then the the Netflix stuff like okay so they have like House of Cards as their like big exclusive, but like after the season wraps they put that out on iTunes so if you're willing to wait like you know you, 
it, there's sort of ways around some of this like exclusive stuff too. Yeah, but then you pay, and then sometimes the seasons are like uh, twenty to thirty-five bucks. I think for a season, sometimes more. I was looking at. Uh, I actually purchased the Earth Two uh, series from BBC. It looked so beautiful. I thought I'll just buy it because I don't want to have to deal with how to obtain it. So I just bought it yeah. on. You know, I'm sure I could get it somehow. I could watch it. I don't even know where it's being broadcast. But uh, besides the BBC, so um, you know, I paid. I forget how much for it in the in HD. And it's gorgeous, and uh, you know, kids will love it. We watched the first episode, and we'll watch it again. But you know, it was twenty, thirty bucks. I forget. And that was a felt like a big purchase. So when you get to the point where you're paying thirty, forty dollars a month with tax, but you would pay that much for series, then how many series? It's such such a calculation. Um, I should bring up again too this interesting thing uh, when I was researching an article for you a few months ago about uh, renting movies online, which turned mm-hmm. out to be kind of a it's not a mess but there's so many options but they shake out to be YouTube is the best place to rent movies uh because it offers it almost always has the lowest price and almost always has the longest duration but you can't rent YouTube movies from Apple TV even though it's a YouTube app YouTube app you can't do it from iOS either yeah you have to go to a desktop browser rent the movie in YouTube then go and pull it up from your like in a slightly obscure spot. I bet it's not spots. a priority. I wonder how many people like rent movies. I know. Well, it's weird though because it's the best deal. So whenever anyone's going to rent is something, it's a good deal. I'm I know. Like, I like. I always watch movies over and over again. So if I'm going to rent it, oh, if there's even it? a chance that I'm going to fall asleep or like not be able to finish, like I would just, I'd rather just buy it. It's like three dollars to rent it and ten dollars to buy it. Like I'll just buy it. Oh yeah, if the spread is much bigger, I I won't. And sometimes new movies are, uh, you know, the, the rental price is higher. Always twenty bucks. They never go on sale. I just yeah. buy them anyway. Because yeah. but, but a kids movie, you will watch it fifty times. Although here's the funny part. This is getting a little aside, but it is true. Is that um, this interesting thing with the spinning discs disappearing from computers? And that uh, you can get um, you know a lot of the time now you can get a DVD or a Blu-ray cheaper than buying it digitally. And you're yeah. like, all right, so should I just buy a used, perfect condition? Blu-ray that has extra features, is super high quality. I don't need the internet. I could actually take it on a trip if there's a Blu-ray player or a DVD player. Um, you know, I've, I get a lot of. I've I've bought these things. Where I don't the, think I'm ever going to buy a movie on a disc ever again. I, I those know, days are over. What's interesting is there is a countervailing trend where people are because of the portability, the cost, the um, cup of the whole issue of uh, caps and uh, uh, no, overcharges. Yeah. So it's yeah. like if I if you watch a bunch of movies, some people are now. Um, it's, it's not, I don't think it's a trend yet, but it is very interesting because I assumed they would just disappear and Blu-ray won't persist, but DVD would sort of go away because it's, the fidelity isn't high enough compared to what you get from streaming. But, um, there is an interesting market developing. I'm a, I guess I'm a Luddite for buying Blu-rays. It's sort of hilarious. I love it. Watch for sales. The big thing too. being uh, Barnes Noble had a sale last year and they were discounting things by like 60%. They had some huge, 30 to 40% off sale that you could combine with a coupon. And so I bought like all of Lord of the Rings in Blu-ray for $20 or something insane. The entire extended cuts, mm-hmm. all three. So watch for sales. Those of us who are buying discs. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I mean, I'm always looking for sales on the iTunes sales. movies. All right. Uh, a few other stories before we finish up this week. I'll just breeze through a few things that we thought might be of interest to you folks. Uh, if you wondered why the internet uh, was dead last week, briefly, it was because Amazon, someone made a typo at uh, Amazon. Susie, they typed a command wrong. <laughs> Did you see that? Yep. 
It was terrible. Uh, Amazon's S3, its simple storage service, uh, drives a lot of the assets of uh, the internet. And uh, there's never a bad idea putting all your eggs in one basket. That's a great idea. You should carry all those eggs overflowing in one basket while you skip down a hill uh, full of gravel. I suggest that. And um, so one of the people at, at Amazon was working on a uh, – They didn't. I don't think they threw the person under the bus. The person typed – The per, it was like – the report was sort of like this person typed something wrong, but the system shouldn't have let them do it more or less. And they, it was a billing uh, management system. And because they did something, it started shutting down all the billing systems, which shut down the ability for S3 to serve out files in one of its uh, major East Coast uh, data centers. So um, that, uh, that explains that. But that's, uh, it's interesting to see how much of the Internet's infrastructure, despite being seemingly so distributed and diversified, uh, is actually tied to like, you know, Amazon running a big server somewhere to feed out images. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, that's how it works. Um, let's see. So that was, uh, if you wonder why that happened, that's why. And they said they're taking measures to make sure that a typo won't take down their entire system again, uh, entire data centers. Um, Susie, you highlighted, uh, you know, I saw the story and I thought this had already come out. The iTunes terms and conditions, the graphic novel, uh, I thought it, I didn't realize it was coming out in pieces. So it's actually, uh, finished now. Uh, it came out in pieces. I saw, ver- I thought I'd seen pieces of it before, like as a PDF download. Um, so, and I was surprised well, to see. Well, there was a different one. So Apple did one of the like developer guidelines. Yeah, while I he I'd was seen... working on this on this oh. iTunes terms and conditions one, and um, one of the co- the company that helped Apple make it for WWC was App Review Guidelines, the comic book. Um, oh, the company oh, oh, that oh. that helped make it last uh, June had had even like um, contacted him. Um, for, you know, about a mysterious project a couple of months earlier, and he was busy working on his own thing, so he just turned it down without even asking them what it oh, was. And then Apple right. put out their own comic book, and he was like, "Whoa, that's crazy! Like, what?" So, but this one, since it's the iTunes terms and conditions, which are huge, this is like a much bigger um, undertaking. So, um, it's it's a it's a hundred pages. Every single page um, is inspired by a different comic book artist. And then, like, the main character is this kind of Steve Jobs-looking guy. And he goes through, as as he's going through the terms and conditions, you see him go from, like, a Superman page to an X-Man page to a Garfield to, you know, Scott Pilgrim. But it's the same kind of um, basic character, like, Steve Jobsian character, like, leading you through this journey through the terms and conditions. It sounds really crazy. We've got um, Andrew Hayward uh, did a, a great interview with the artist. And so we've got some some panels up on the site and um, you can, you know, click them and peruse them. And just like the the dialogue is so, you know, it's legalese, <laughs> but with the to, to see like the pictures that they drew to illustrate it, it's just, it's really fun and nerdy. I love it. It is pretty amazing effort. I, I have to say, the only thing I don't like about it, I had seen pages from this and I'd forgotten the whole kerfuffle over the uh, the Apple commissioned one. The the only thing I don't like about it is um, nothing is contextual. It's all the drawings are completely unrelated to the um, uh, to any of the text. So it's, they're all staying legalese. And I would have loved it if there was not that the um, that the uh, cartoons illustrated the legalese, but there's just zero connection. So you know when they're yeah. talking. There's a little bit. There, well, no, like when they're talking, it's just um, there's like a you can sort of see. I mean, comics communicate through visual and text, but I don't feel like 
the tone of the um, of the particular text in question or the content really reflects um, really reflects the thing. But it is I I've always liked his work. I'm a longtime fan of uh, of our period and Arsikarek, um, and uh, it's a pretty astonishing effort. And it also just highlights the absurdity of the length of the contract because no human being is actually going to ever have read that. Nobody will. Uh, yeah, it's really long. We are. Oh, and the uh, one last thing I know you stuck this in the, uh, the uh, Sonos has a new uh, Playbase speaker. It's designed to go under your television set. Um, I do not own Sonos equipment. Are you a Sonos owner? I'm not, but I know that so you know, do. the Apple people love it because it's so well designed and the iOS app works really well. Um, I don't understand like the whole thing about how you can't just like send any old audio to any old speaker. That seems like what I would want, but I don't also really do. My house isn't really big enough to get into like home whole home audio. Like I can only really be in one room at a time. So I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's not really my thing, but this thing looks really cool. Like I've been thinking about getting a new TV and then part of that would probably be ditching my old um, stereo system and just getting some kind of sound bar. So the Sonos one is is really tempting. It's $700, which is probably more than I would spend on the TV itself. Um, and they actually have so this is like a, a play base. If you're going to have your TV on a TV stand, this goes, the speaker goes on the stand and then your TV can sit right on top of the speaker. And a sound bar is more like if you're going to mount your TV on the wall, then you can mount the sound bar oh, underneath it. So they're coming out with both. The sound bar is called Play Bar and that's going to be out first. It ships in April. So TechHive is um, working on getting a review unit before that. And then the Play Base, they're taking pre-orders for, but it'll come out later. I'm not really sure if they... The feature set is is much different, but um, Mike Brown, who's the the speaker guy over at TechHive, um, is really just this thing. It's, it looks like the the regular Sonos speaker if you just took an iron and just ironed it like <laughs> flat. It's only a couple of inches high, and it's got like you know like a whole array of speakers in there. And he's just really interested in like how it's going to sound, um, just from the form factor. So if Mike's excited, I'm excited and we will follow up because I know a lot of Apple people are really into Sonos. Yeah. Sonos had a bunch of big, uh, big layoffs in uh, March of last year. So they need some new products ostensibly. I don't know if they've reworked and rethought how they're, how they're going, but uh, a lot of, you know, uh, consumer electronics industry is really difficult. Um, Susie, I don't spend that kind of money on uh, speaker stuff either. And uh, I have a small house. I as want well. to, it's Sonos want, is an aspirational I, thing no. for me. Like I want to be a Sonos person. I'm just not yet. <laughs> my, my big outlay was uh, I needed to test some 5.1 stereo gear. That's, you know, five channel. It's a, uh, it's a uh, left and right center surround sound and then a subwoofer. So it's five plus the dot one for the subwoofer. Very yeah. standard thing people like, and a lot of movies are encoded uh, so that they can do the surround in it. So, and even um, animation, I'm amazed. So, I wanted to be able to test 5.1 gear for um, a variety of things for Mac World and Tech Hive. So, I'm like, gosh, you know, uh, we can't afford a big system, and our house is so small. Like, we're not going to take advantage. And I actually don't even have that much space to put the surround down speakers. Yeah, yeah. Mono price, $90. Can I get you into a surround sound system for five dot one for nine dollars? It's really quite good. We had some very old speakers that were kind of getting funky, and uh, uh, this is a significant upgrade. And um, they're really tiny, and uh, the subwoofer we stuck behind our TV cabinet, and mm -hmm. uh, the others we stuck around. And I, uh, my, I, have, I have a Yamaha that has this weird little thing I'd never used before. You stick it. At the height, it's like a little sensor. You stick it at the sort of place where you're typically be listening, and you push a button. It runs a bunch of tests, and it automatically adjusts the 5.1 system to the right levels. 
Boom. Nice. Yeah. So with a uh, with a several year old receiver and a ninety dollars set of five dot one speakers, my house was highly upgraded. And and because God we, bless mono price, we were able to put the speakers. Like it is really eerie sometimes. I'll think someone's behind me because I'm watching something. I'm watching a show that I wouldn't think was. Um, mastered into 5.1 and then sure enough there's like a door slams and it's behind me and it's really you know that kind of thing so i'm actually impressed by how much uh 5.1 has obviously hit like i say not just movies but into um into uh regular television programming uh cartoons and um and broadcast stuff so it's kind of cool kind of cool that it's uh it comes up that's my tip buy your movies on youtube because they're cheap buy your modern price things because i'm cheap and i think that takes us to the end of this episode of the podcast um i but, still want to keep the movie forever you can keep it well but hey you're just licensing it when you buy it online Susie. i know oh, i know i know if you own it in plastic plastic Susie, yeah plastics. no i remember like i grew up and everyone had the clamshell like you know vhs in the in the oh. clamshell collection of all the kids movies and you had a whole a whole bookshelf in your house it was just all their movie it's collection. true i had a friend uh, his parents bet on betamax they're like and what was funny is betamax even though it faded <laughs> pretty fast the the upside of everyone that was, says it was better well the ups it was it i now used to go watch movies this house like this looks really good my vhs looks crappy but the uh, the upside was when betamax started to fail they bought movies super cheap because the no, video stores were yeah. selling them for like a buck so they had yeah. an incredible movie selection of uh Limited format. They eventually got a VHS. Um, folks, we love your feedback. And, uh, and uh, you know, someone just wrote me about my uh, about the discussion about Shaw 1 we had last week. Uh, um, we know you're listening. We like to hear from you. You can email us, podcast at macworld.com. I know we don't have comments on the site anymore. Some people don't like to do the Twitter where we're at Macworld or at SF Soos, SF, S-O-O-Z like Z, and at Glenn F, G-L-E-N-N-F, uh, facebook.com slash Macworld. Uh, some people don't use those systems. You can, in fact, mail us, podcast at Macworld.com. That pops into Susie's mailbox, and she will forward it to me, uh, and we read your mail. And we uh, we love to hear your feedback from wherever, and, and um, we use it to try to shape the program. Even if we don't always get to the specific issue, it does affect how we think about things. Uh, so find us all those places, including at Macworld.com. Susie, great to talk to you again. You too. Thanks, Glenn. Thank you. And uh, folks, thanks for listening to episode 549 of the Macworld podcast for March 8th, 2017. Next week will be episode 550. Woohoo! It's not really a milestone. Never mind. Uh, but we'll be back then, and we hope you'll be here listening to us. Thanks. Thanks.